Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 201. We're approaching Rish Chedesh Adar this week, the beginning of the new month of Adar, the, the last and twelfth month of the year as we count them by the calendar, the lunar calendar. We are also in the week of Parshas Truma, and additionally, the Shabbos Parshas Truma has another name in Poskim, it's called the Shabbos Hafsaka. Hafsaka means a separation. Hafsaka means a uh, pause, a Shabbos of pause. Why? Because there, as you know, there are the four chapters that we read during this time, going from other through Nisan, the Parsha Shkolim, which we always read, and the Shabbos that blesses the month of other, or on the Rishchidosh Adar Shkolim. We spoke about that last week. There's the Shabbos, after that comes Pasha Zohar, the Dalit Parshas. This is an additional reading to the regular reading of the Torah, Pasha Zohar, which is always the Shabbos before Purim, the Shabbos we read about remembering Amalek. It's always preceding, of course, the events with Haman, who, uh, who originated from Amalek. The third Pasha is Pasha's Pora, that comes after Zohar. And there's a final Pasha's HaChidosh. Pasha's Pora, we read about the offering of the red heifer, the purified from Tumas Mes, from the impurity of death, which preceded the Shabbos, Pasha Zachedish, we read about the Achedish Hazelachem, which is around the Rishchedish Shabbos before or on Rishchedish Nissen, that talks about the redemption, the new moon, and the carbon that was brought then. And Parah is read before that because Parah is the, you have, to be, you have to be purified before you bring an offering. But when you count these four weeks, the question is do they all come? in consecutive weeks. No, they t- over a span of five weeks. So Pora and Achedish are always one consecutive to the, leading into the other. But Shkolim and Zacher can be two scenarios. You can have a scenario where right, right after you read Pasha Shkolim, the next week you read Zacher. Or it can be that there's a sp- pause between the two, which is like it is this year. And this is Pasha Tzum, it's called Hafsaka. Sometimes the Hafsaka comes that you read Parsh, uh, uh, Shkolim and then right next week Zohar, and the Hafsaka is between Zohar and Parah. I hope you followed. The Rebbe has a fascinating sikha where he spoke about this on Pasha, Pasha Truma, which was the Hafsaka, back in Tovshin Mem. Tovshin Mem would be 38 years ago. So we're going to talk about that briefly, a lesson from that. But I just wanted to first, I always begin with the time, but I want to first begin, since this is the last few days before the, the due date of the essay contest, our fourth annual My Life Chassidus Applied Essay Contest. So I want to begin with that because of the timeliness of it. At the end of this week, on Rosh Chodesh the second day of Rosh Chodesh which will be Friday, 11.59 a.m., Friday afternoon, Friday right before noon, Eastern Standard Time, is the due date for the submissions of the essay. So you really have six, essentially six more days. And I want to encourage everyone to participate for the $10,000 first prize, the $3,600 second prize, and the $1,000 third prize, plus an additional track of a $500 prize to students 14, aged 14 to 21. Essays have already been coming in. I think it's been, it's probably will, will, uh, bypass, will, um, will over, bypass, I don't know if that's the right word, it will, we'll have more essays this year than we had in the previous years, which is great news. It means the word is spreading. It means that people are engaged. And I've heard in a few schools, they actually made it mandatory as for 12th graders for different classes to, to actually pre- present a paper like this. 
and there's actually an unbelievable opportunity, and I say this especially to educators, if you're teaching chassidus, and, and generally you want to give um, assignments or, or writings that you want the students to do, here's an excellent opportunity with the additional incentive of the prizes involved and the public forum of, of honoring the awarded essays. So every essay written, as a, from my point of view, is a winner because it's taking someone who's taking their time and energy and valuable time and energy to apply themselves to take an idea from this and apply it to contemporary issue or challenge in life. But competition, from competition brings out the best in us. So I encourage everyone to participate. The guidelines and the details of how to submit an essay are all very clearly stated at Meaningful Life dot com slash contest and uh, please uh, participate you have really nothing to lose on the contrary all to gain and and, uh, we made it especially in a way that anybody can win I always repeat the same rules besides reading the guidelines make sure that your essay follows each aspect of the guideline it will definitely heighten your score we've already announced also the prestigious judges all can be found on these on the landing page as I said meaningfullife.com slash contest and I look forward to seeing, reading the essays and seeing the essays and making sure the judges are excited to evaluate them. And in the next few weeks, coming, leading toward Pesach, we plan to announce it right either around Yud Aleph Nissen or a little around that, a little earlier, depending when the essay, essays are all finished evaluation. Everyone is being read blindly by the judges. means they have no clue who wrote those essays. Not, not the name of the person, not their age, not their gender, not where they come from in the world. And of course, the essays are either in English, can be submitted in English, Hebrew, or Yiddish. Okay, let's now go back to the time in which we are, which is, we'll start with Adr, and we'll move to Truma and Hafsoke, as I mentioned. So Adr, of course, Adr immediately leads, especially when you take into context Adr from the point of view of Chassidus applied to Adr. What does Chassidus have to say about the month of Adr? So the primary thing Chassidus emphasizes is the Simcha. Mishanichnes Adr marbim besimcha. As other enters, we increase in joy. Simcha is a foundational element in Judaism in general. Ivdus Hashem b'simcha, shall serve God with simcha. In Shulchan Aruch, the, the Beis Yosef made it clear. They say, they say, Shnei Tmidin, just like there were two Tmidin uh, offerings, public offerings brought one in the morning, one in the evening. So you have in Erechaim, he begins with Shavisi Hashem Lenegdi Samid, the first Tamid. And it concludes with Tev Lev Mishta Tamid, that your heart shall always be filled with Mishta, with joy and celebration. Tachas Hashalayavata Besimcha Betuv Levov, as the Alter Rebbe says at the end of chapter 26 in Tanya, from Darizal, Neida Lukail, everybody knows what Darizal says about it, but the foundational element that not just to serve God, but to serve God with joy. The Baal Shemtov, the Miyasid, the founder of Hasidus, and of course his successors, the Maggid of Mizrich and then the Alter Rebbe and the Rabbeim afterwards made Simcha into a Yisod, a foundational element in Hasidic, in the Hasidic approach. Now what does that mean? As I pointed out a number of times, obviously it doesn't mean they came to innovate anything new. Simcha is a mitzvah in the Torah. Long before the Baal Shem Tov. But they emphasized it, just like obviously Sirol, and just like divine providence, and just like his creation, perpetual creation. And that, uh, that we learn a lesson from everything in this world, even though these principles existed, but Peter Shabashemtov, the Bashemtov spread it. The Bashemtov emphasized it. He shined a light on these foundational elements and taught us also how to achieve joy. 
And that is through accessing the soul of everything. And that's why it's so much connected to chassidus. Why? Because someone can say, my life is not joyous. I have, neg- I have many, many negative things happening in my life. I have many reasons not to be happy. Difficulty at job, difficulty at home, difficulty in my personal life. People have it. We all have to go through our challenges. So how could you expect me to be mishted, tamid, always joyous? Everything should be done with joy. There are times there's joy, there's times that it's difficult to have joy. So how does a person come to joy? The answer is, if you live your life basically on that surface level and you are a victim or a product of circumstances, yes, so there are days, better days, as they say, and there are not such good days. There's the, the bright, bright days and there's the cloudy days. However, since life is not just on the surface level and superficial level, if you dig deeper and you access your soul and you ask yourself your question, why is my soul sent to this world? And you live a life that also is defined, at least also, or primarily defined by the soul's interests, then the mere fact that you were born, that you were created, that you're given a new day, no matter what happens that day, your mission should make you celebrate because that is why you, you were given that gift, the gift of life, the gift of a calling. You say, Maida'ani in the morning to acknowledge that gift. The soul was returned to you to start a new day. The day may sometimes go easier, may sometimes go harder, but even the hard day is also part of your mission. When someone's on a mission, no matter what part of the journey they're on, whether it's an up or a down, a dip, or a twist or a turn, it's part of this, the same joyous journey. And you'll see people who are focused on that element, this, the mission of their lives, sometimes you reap, sometimes you have to sow. Sometimes you, things come easier, sometimes they come more difficultly. You have to exert yourself. And, and often there are challenges and there can even be painful moments. But you look at it as a, a, a spiritual journey, as an entire journey, then it's all, instead of looking at it from moment to moment, now I'm happy, now I'm not happy, there's a general joy that permeates, that is an undercurrent of that journey of life called the life of mission, the calling that you were given in this world. Now, if a person does not focus on that part, obviously then the winds will sway them from one direction to the next. One wind will blow nicely and you'll feel good. Another day the wind blows not nicely, or too extremely, and it could cause you pain and suffering. But if a person is, has that foundation, that individual foundation which Chassidus teaches us to connect to the soul, why are you here? The big picture. Then every part of the journey, even whatever winds blow, the easier winds or the more difficult winds, you have a foundational base that keeps you unwavering in forging ahead. And forging ahead, sometimes, yes, you go forward thrust, sometimes you have to pause and, uh, and, uh, and prepare yourself for the next stage. That's a common thing in business. Sometimes you're in a state where you are reaping, where things are growing and there's a lot of growth. But sometimes when, when there's a lower, when the markets are quieter or there's a certain ebb and there is a certain, um, a, a certain pause in the, that type of accelerated growth, what do you do then? You take stock, you prepare, you evaluate, you strategize. All that is part of the process. Just like when someone studies something, you study, and then sometimes you need to pause in order to be able to absorb, prepare you for the next stage. This is the common process of a real journey. When we're immature, or we don't focus, or we're completely consumed with instant gratification, you say, I want it now. It doesn't work that way. You plant the seed. You water. Sometimes there'll be storms. Sometimes there'll be droughts. But you keep persistently watering and cultivating. Then slowly it grows and grows and emerges. And that's the key to see it through. 
That's why Chassidus is such a foundational element because Simcha gives you that, that soul connection to everything that you're doing. And as the Alter Rebbe explains in Tanya in that chapter 26, that, that you also have then the, the confidence that you can fight any battle. As he says, Atzvus, the, the alter ego, the, the diametric opposite of joy, it drags you down, weighs you down, you feel depressed, you feel demoralized. Joy is that sense that I can accomplish anything I set my mind to. Now, that doesn't mean every day it's the same type of movement. It means that that's a general approach because you were given a mission, you were given all the resources you need to fulfill that mission. So, doesn't mean the simcha all year round, as I said. It's a foundational tamid, tevlev mishta tamid. But in other, there's additional focus, and one of the reasons is because of Purim, because it transformed even the greatest challenge, a challenge of genocide, to Chedesh Hashanepach Bem, and one that was transformed to a month of joy. But the joy doesn't begin Purim, which is in two weeks, it be, it, it, from the Chedesh to Yudalat Hazvav Adar, but it begins immediately as we enter the month. So it's an increased connection, because sometimes when you go through a dark moment and you come to light after that, obviously the joy is even greater. There's no joy as great as the one when you resolve doubts. And even more than doubts, you resolve a, uh, a terrible decree and the challenges of life, darkest challenges. Amalek is gematria sophic. So you resolve the doubt that come from the other side that tries to weaken our resolve which we will read in Parsha Zohar, but we're not there yet. So this is the lessons that we learn about joy as we are about to enter into the month of Adar. Truma, and also Parsha Zohar. So Truma, of course, is the, the offering and the donations, the equally Truma that, were, that Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu, God says to Moses, tell the Jewish people, the equally Truma, they shall bring for me a, a Truma literally means upshaden, to separate but it means a truma, a, a donation, a contribution from which we will, the, the temple, the Mishkan, the portable sanctuary that was then in the wilderness as they traveled, will be built from the gold, silver, and copper and the other 12, 15 items that are mentioned in the Torah that we contribute from our physical matter, from our physical beings, and from physical possessions to turn the physical world into a sanctuary into a dwelling place, into a dira, a home, a comfortable home for the divine. V'shachanti v'seichem. V'osili migdash, you shall make for me a sanctuary, and I will rest among you. That, of course, immediately brings to the greatest joy. Because it's not just a joy from spiritual activity. There's joy, you can say, you know what, I'm involved in my mundane activities, and my physical activities. Okay, I try to make ends meet, I try to succeed. You could have so-called satisfaction and contentment and joy from physical success. But real spiritual joy comes from my family, from Shabbos, from Yom Tov, from the things that I do that are involved on a spiritual level. No, the Mishkan is not made from spiritual items. It's made from physical items. Because in Judaism, there is no dichotomy. There's a fusion, a utter unity between the matter and spirit. And from matter itself, we make a home for the spirit. For the divine spirit, the Shechina should rest there, which even increases even more in the joy. So it's not just a material joy at one end of the spectrum, spiritual joy elsewhere, but it's a joy that comes together that you can actually take your material life and your work and even the things that sometimes are challenging on a physical level and not just escape into a Shabbos or into a spiritual transcendent state, but you actually take the physical and that itself becomes 
a, a keli, a container, a dwelling place, a, a platform for divine presence. Which means that there's then, therefore, nothing is devoid of the divine purpose of our lives. Even our physical activities are means toward that spiritual end. So that only increases because unity and joy always go hand in hand. When a person feels fragmented, they can feel confused, they can feel disoriented. When you feel that every part of your life is going toward a direction, the same direction, it creates a certain peace of mind, a certain comfort, certain synchronicity that everything is directed towards something. Think about it. You know, you come home or your desk, you feel it's all, everything is everywhere, or you feel your life is cluttered from so many different, so many different directions. And when you find that type of unifying principle where you could say, ah, the different things I'm doing, as diverse as they are, but they all fit, they're going toward a general one higher purpose, it has a very deep inner satisfaction that because the soul gravitates towards that type of inner unity. And this is a very profound concept in Chassidus, applying Chassidus to our lives, is the psychological peace of mind that you do not live a fragmented life, even though it can appear to the, to the eye that there are many fragments of our lives, but there's a thread that connects them all to a higher divine calling and purpose. And I believe that that probably, if you can achieve that, it will preempt and solve most of our internal emotional, personal, psychological issues, which are often based on the different, on being tugged by different directions, tugged in different, the different voices and the different demands and expectations, both in inner voices and outer voices that, um, that, that, can, that make their demands and expectations of us. So the unity, the unity that is so vital to a human being's welfare and our personal well-being on the deepest possible level to succeed at anything we're doing is so much dependent on the idea of, of the joy that brings out in our lives, on the unity that we can achieve. And finally, with Parsha's Hafsakeh, the safe, uh, this week is Hafsakeh, and this fascinating sikha, which I refer you to, Parsha's Truma Tovshin Mem, the Rebbe explains briefly that you can say Hafsakeh seems to be a negative thing. It's like you're pausing. Something is flowing good. You're reading the Parsha's. You're re- doing something positive, And then suddenly you take a stop. But in Judaism and Torah, there's no such thing as a stop. Even the stop is part of the journey. It's just like when a person travels and they say, I have to rest for a while. Rest is not, is not a problem. Rest is part of the journey. To gather energy, to take, uh, to take um, stock. So we talk of find that when Hashem, chose, when Hashem taught Torah to, Torah to Moses, so what does it say in the beginning of Parsha Vayikra? There was mafsig ben parsha la parsha. Hashem made hafsaka. He paused. Now Hashem is an unbelievable teacher, the greatest ever. Moshe is the greatest student ever. What do you need to pause? Just keep on going. Because pauses are necessary for internalizing, for integrating. And Moshe needed those pauses. So the pauses become also part of the journey. So Shabbos hafsaka is not a hafsaka and meant to be a pause, a stop. In a negative sense, it's part of the process of growth because there's two ways you can do your work, you can do your work going forward, and there are times you need to pause to absorb, to internalize, to take stock. So that's the Shabbos Hafsakim. That after we do Shkolim, Shkolim is the beginning of the Aveda. What's the beginning of the Aveda? The first thing is Avis Yisrael. Loving your fellow. Unity. That everybody feels they're, part, they're a half a shekel, and you need the other half to be complete. That's the foundation of everything. So after that, you take Avsaka, why the Avsaka? The Avsaka is not just a pause, 
But as the Rebbe explains there, the pause is also to be able to climb even higher. Shevi Yipul Tzadik Vikom, as Al Tareb explains in the introduction to Shayyuch Vamunah Chinuch Cotton, that the pause is in order to gather more strength so you can even now climb to the next level. So it's not just a pause, as I mentioned before, a pause because you need to rest to be able to go further, but to go even higher, you sometimes need to pause and sort of stop. But not a stop, it's in order to get even a greater level. So after Shkolim, we take a pause. But there are years, not like this year, where the pause comes after Zohar. Why is that? So the Rebbe explains that when Parshish Shkolim is done right and we internalize the message, what message? Of love with passion, fiery passion, and it lasts a whole week because Shabbos blesses the entire week, then immediately we get the lesson, okay, now you think you've done that? Let's now grow to the next level. Pause in order to climb in that type of unity to grow to another level. However, there are times where the passion wears off and Amole comes into the picture and cools us off and tries to make us complacent. That's why you sometimes need Zohar right after Shkolem to remind you. Because since you may not have had the fire completely lit, to remind you to watch out, there's a, there's a, remember what Amalek did. And then after that comes the Avsoke that tells you now, now that you're reminded, now needs the, the pause to teach you to grow to the next level and go even higher. So the Rebbe explains it. Additionally, the Rebbe brings another point with Avsoke, which is a beautiful concept that in, that for example, you have with Rabbi Zayda in the Gemara, where he studied the entire Talmud Bavli and became a master. And then he decided he wants to fast I'm sorry, he wanted to master now the Talmud Yerushalmi. There are two academies, the Babylonian Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud. In order to achieve mastery of the Jerusalem Talmud, he fasted to forget the Babylonian Talmud so he can elevate to the Jerusalem Talmud. So the Rebbe asked the question, fast? To forget Torah? What kind of behavior is that? But it's a hafsake, like a, in, in order to reach a greater place. The fasting was not to forget. The forget, forgasting was to get out of the, the methodology of the Babylonian approach so he can be, prepare himself for the methodology of the Jerusalemite Talmud approach, the Jerusalem Talmud approach. So here again you see that, that need for Hefzik. The Rebbe explains that Hefzik can be of two parts. One is when you're studying Torah, you come to a point where you have to then sometimes pause in order to bring that study into action. So that's a pause in order to implement the Torah. Or because it's a mitzvah that you have to fulfill that no one else can fulfill. But then in Teda itself, we see from the story of Rabzeda that in Teda itself you can have a pause. And the Rebbe compares it to the space, the white space that you see in a Sefer Teda. When you write, there's the Levnunis, the white space is like the Afsaka, there's nothing there in the white space. The black space is where the letters are. But for the letters to really be appreciated, you need white space, you need a Hefzik. And the Rebbe compares it also to the Tzimtzum Arishan. The first Tzimtzum, what's a Tzimtzum? is a Hefzik. It says clearly that the light, the infinite light that filled everything, then went to a state of a hefsik, hefsik, he paused the light, like lights out, and created a chol pony. But what was the kavona of the hefsik? Not to remain a hefsik. The kavona is in order to bring in the light in even a greater way. And then when you do it after the hefsik, you reach a level, the Rebbe says, even higher than the air before the tzimtzum. That's the process of life, that you need to have those stages. So sometimes you're going forward, that's the flow of light, and sometimes you need a hefzik, but the hefzik is not an end in itself. It's only a stepping stone in order to reach even a tzimtzum b'shvilah gili. That the tzimtzum, the hefzik, is in order to be a revelation that comes afterwards. In our personal lives, this is a process that all of us have to realize that in life, 
As I mentioned before, the joy of life is recognizing this journey, that the journey is not just one forward thrust. It's you go forward, there are pauses we take, but the pauses are also part of the growth. And they reach, reach, actually reach and achieve even a higher level of growth. There are more details about this that you can look up in that sicha. Now let's move into now some topics that are, were asked, some are follow-up. So let us begin with, before I begin, let me give you some cross-referencing. Remember that My Life Chassidus Applied is now 200 episodes strong. And we're now in the 201st, thank God. Um, I, would have, I would never have believed it, but yes, and questions keep coming in. Thousands and thousands of questions that we've already addressed. We're talking about four years now, four years of, uh, of 200 episodes. So all of these episodes can be found archived at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. You'll find them archived. You can find there also the place, the forum, where you can submit your question, anonymous question, comment, completely anonymous. Or if you're requesting any material that you hear that we speak about that reference is made to and you want to get it in it by email, please add your email address, of course, for us to be able to respond and send it to you. There you'll also find all the essays that were written in the three previous contests. And Mr. Shem, when this contest concludes, will be posting the winners and then all the essays as they, uh, in the order that they, that of their marks as we post them week after week. So you can find many essays, hundreds and hundreds of essays on literally every topic under the sun. So, I, so I'm mentioning it because also cross-referencing, it's inevitable in 200 episodes that we're not going to overlap and certain topics are going to be discussed more than once. So what I attempt to do is always cross-reference because there are topics that I've addressed in one program and, and, and another one much more elaborately. No need to always repeat the whole thing again. So it's easy to find, very easy to find by searching. And after I give you the episode numbers, you can also look at each episode and it's time-stamped. Something I, many people keep asking about. Every episode is time-stamped, which means that you can actually go to the topic addressed and there's a, cl- a link. You just click on it, you can go jump right straight to that topic addressed and you don't need to listen to what was before or after. So regarding other Truma and Hafsaka, well, Hafsaka I have not discussed before, but Truma, other and Truma, please refer, I refer you to episodes 56, 102, and 152. Okay. The next question is we'll go over to another topic, which is the topic of abuse. Sadly, we still live in a world where abuse is possible and unfortunately also comes from time to time actual, not just possible. And abuse takes on many different shapes and forms and I've talked about it for many, many different weeks. But the questions do come in because these are real issues that people are asking about. And though I don't like comfortable reading it, I'm not comfortable addressing it, but I do feel honored the fact that people feel the, the confidence and the trust in this program and in myself to be able to address some of the most sensitive and more painful issues in life. And Teirach Siddis does not answer, it's only there to give us the directives when everything, when the sun is shining and everything is great, that doesn't address the other part of life when things are not that great, or when there is a concealment, a momentary concealment. So though, as I said, it's not something we want, it's not pleasant, but it's critical to demonstrate and, prove and establish that Chassidus, Teda Chassidus addresses even the darkest corners of our lives. I've heard this from many people who say, yes, it's very nice, the Torah is very good, Pesach, Purim, the holiday, Shabbos, for people who are uh, healthy and happy. But for people like us who feel forsaken, who feel alone, who feel isolated, who feel 
that nobody understands us, or feel that our pain is all alone, what does the Torah have to say about that? What does Chassidus have to say? That is why I'm focusing, and I, and I focus as much as possible uh, when, in responding to questions of that nature just as much as questions that come of different nature. Just wanted to state that and welcome anyone to please do not feel you are alone. You can write any question you like, and I, I give you my pledge and I promise that I will address it. Sometimes not the same week. It may take a few weeks because we have a real backup of questions, but I will address it, and especially the most painful ones and the most saddest ones I often give, I often give priority to because of the, the nature of, their, of the request. So please feel you have the absolute op- opportunity, and I say this to everyone listening, to share it also with friends and family and others who may feel they have nowhere to turn to. They actually can feel completely comfortable and complete confidence that they can anonymously submit any question no matter what is happening. And anyone who's listened to this can, can testify to the fact and verify that I address things that are not comfortable, as well as obviously comfortable things, and even things that are considered taboo or too provocative or too sensitive. Obviously, it has to be done with discretion, the right type of expressions, and of course with the right amounts of, of uh, confidentiality, which always is preserved. And anyone can write those questions, and I want to just reiterate it again and again, because that, above all, is breaking the silence and knowing that you have the right and the dignity to be able to express yourself, even something that where you've been hurt and people have silenced you or have invalidated you, please see this as an opportunity to counter that by beginning to speak up and hopefully grow through that. And I will do my best to respond to it. And of course, if you want to proceed and pursue this further and want to speak to me, I'll be happy to speak to any person if you send an email and send us a way to contact you, or we'll give you a way so we know how to reach you, or you can reach us, and uh, can stay anonymous as well. does not have to breach any type of confidences. I'm stating it because from time to time it has to be stated clearly. This is a big part of the objective of Chassidus, applying Chassidus, even to the darkest corners, even to the sometimes the ugliest spaces that all of us have, because this is the world in which we live, and this is the purpose for which God sent us here, is to deal also with that darker place. So with that said, we'll talk about something, adult abuse survivors, abuse issues. Now, topics have been addressed in previous episodes. I'll refer them after I read the question. So this is a question that goes like this. Does a survivor need to show respect to an abusive parent? I'm a professional that works with many from women who are married and struggle in various ways. Very often these women reveal having endured sexual abuse as a child by a trusted family member. I should add viewer discretion advised. If children are watching or anything like that, maybe I should have mentioned the drop earlier. This is not, nothing will be said here that is inappropriate, but sometimes parents may feel some of these words may not be appropriate for everybody. And I agree, they shouldn't be necessarily stated, so I'm just mentioning that since it is talking about a sensitive issue. Okay, so this professional is working with many from women who are dealing with this form of abuse. Often they have made the choice not to share as they're terrified of the impact it will have on their families and various other reasons. They struggle with, especially when the abuser was a parent, not seeing Yiddishkeit as something, as something horrific, as the parent was respected and a role model to others, including other family members of what a religious man looks like. What does Chassidus say regarding respect of their abuser? Do they, need to allow, do they need to allow them to be under their children's chuppah? Do they must sit shiva 
when the time comes, meaning Shiva for a parent who is an abuser, they may go through the motions as they haven't shared due to damaging family name, but they resent religion and God. How can they make peace within themselves from a Hasidic perspective? Okay. Yeah. As I said, this is not pleasant to speak about, but we must speak about it for the obvious reasons. So, the question therefore goes down to breaks into two. One, I said already, does a survivor need to show respect to an abusive parent? And the second, how can a survivor avoid seeing Judaism as horrific when the abuse came from a Jewish role model? Yeah, we'll deal with one at a time. But I'll begin firstly with the cross-referencing. Generally, honoring abusive parents I addressed back in episodes 13 and 14, from the earliest episodes, as well as related to that episode 199, which was also about honoring parents who don't always, always seem to deserve honor. General abuse issues I have discussed in additionally in episodes 55, 56, and 57, 103, 136, and 147. I'm giving you the full cross-referencing, and you can, as you see fit, you can check that out. But now I will address these issues, and I definitely refer you to those others because I'm sure there are topics that I addressed more elaborately then, and I'm not going to repeat those. Try to focus on the exact questions here. So, we have the mitzvah of Kabbalah Savicha V'Samecha. Let's start with that. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Honor your parents, your father and mother, the man Yericha and Yemecha, in order for you to have lengthy days. So, of course, the obvious question is, is this an unconditional mitzvah, meaning what happens if the parents are murderers? Just using it as an example. Or they do something that's simply completely horrendous. So, what was there? Is it Kabbalah Savicha without any... Um, uh, any disclaimers or any exclusions. So, of course, in Torah, Halacha talks about it. One example is that the parents ask you, your parents ask you to do something that breaks the Torah, you're not supposed to listen. I it says Kabid. So the, the answer is very simple. Your parents have to honor God too. So they cannot tell you to do something that defies God because God gave this whole power in the first place. So there you have an exception. That immediately you can extrapolate from that other exceptions in the same context. If your parents ask you to do something that is a crime, to hurt someone else, that's breaking Torah. Besides not menschlichkeit, obviously. But you see from that, it's not just an unconditional mitzvah in that and, and, and simple as that. It's not that simple. Now, however, this is what's important to remember. Even when you are, uh, let's say your parents ask you to do something that's inappropriate, that breaks law. Even then you're honoring your parents when you don't do it. Why? Because you're honoring God, who your parents have to honor. They're just distorted. They're messed up. They're asking you to do something because they're unhealthy. So in a way you're honoring them. Why? Because you're honoring their life that they gave you is actually the foundation of why we honor our parents, as I've discussed a number of times. Chassidus asks the question, God gives life. There's no shituf. In Judaism, in the Jew, a Jew is not allowed to remember, it's, not allowed, it's like a considered a vedazara for a Jew to think that there's a partner to God. Not just that there's a replacement to God, God forbid. A vedazara mamash, an idol. But even a partnership. So why do we honor our parents? They're partners, we know they're three partners. The answer is you're not honoring your parents, you're honoring the godly power they, that was passed on through them to give you life. That's why the fifth mitzvah, the fifth commandment is Kabbalah Savicha. Where's the fifth commandment? On the first tablet. The second tablet begins, 
the thing that you're not allowed to do to uh, hurt others. Kabbalah you think, has also been on the It's between you and your parents. Not chaveri as a friend, but to another human. No. It goes with the mitzvahs, like anoichi Hashem alekecha, I am your God. The yilecha, Shabbos, not to curse God, Shabbos. These are all mitzvahs between us and God because the mitzvah of honoring your parents is between us and God, not between us and our parents. Now, if they earn the right, meaning they are nurturing and they're fine, obviously, besides just honoring the life that comes through them, which is the minimum, you can also love them and you can also honor them for everything they've done for you. But the foundation is even the worst possible parents, there's still room for honor because you're not honoring them, you're honoring the life that you receive from them, which explains why it gives you a long life. That's why the, of, the, of the Ten Commandments, this one states the reward we get. Why is it negay? Why is it important to know the reward we get? Because it's a direct cause and effect. Because you're respecting life, therefore you get life. So regarding now bring, applying this to the concept of abuse, abuse, number one is, as I said, abuse, if someone abuses you, they're breaking the Torah, above all. They're breaking what God wants. So to honor them, you could say, no, you can't honor them for the abuse because if the abuse is hurting you and continues to hurt you, then it could very well be if a professional says, stay out of the line of fire. It's important for your health, which is also a mitzvah. And pekuach nefesh, we also know, pekuach nefesh doesn't always mean life and death. It could also be your health, your welfare. This would include even the parents about being them under a chuppah, could be. I'm not saying in every case. Why? Because it comes down to whether... Some people have worked through the abuse. They've gone, grown through it. They've transcended. Not that they necessarily have forgiven. Not that the parents are absolved of their responsibility. But it could be. It's not affecting you in any negative way. I know people who said, you know what? I allowed my father, even though he abused me, to be under the chuppah. Why? Because end of the day, he's no longer hurting me. So let him have that honor. Not out of weakness because, like you write, people who don't want to speak about it because of their shame or because they don't want to destroy the family or because they don't want to upset the whole cart. But there are people who have grown through it. That's why I can't just say black and white. We have also another halach, but, th- but there are circumstances where it may be a situation where if your health is being, is being hurt, it's like saying your parents are putting poison in your coffee every day. Do you have to go drink coffee with them because they're asking you to, to honor them? Obviously not. The same thing could be psychologically and emotionally. So it depends on the circumstance in that regard. That's why we also have a halacha, Hilchus Erev Yom Kippur. It talks about the issues of forgiveness. It says you have to forgive someone who's, who's, who, let's say someone who's hurt you, asks for forgiveness. You're not supposed to be an achzer, meaning cruel, and not forgive them. However, with two exceptions. Alter Rebbe brings this in, the, in Shulchan Aruch. One exception is if you feel they're not contrite enough They've not really done shuvah and their heart hasn't been broken. You have a right to not forgive them because you feel they have not yet done what they had to go through in order to really be sincere in their request. Even if this request is sincere, if you feel they have not been broken enough, you, you, can, you can refrain from giving forgiveness. Second is if it hurts you. If you forgive them and it hurts you. So I've not seen necessarily this applied to the concept of honoring your parents, but why wouldn't it be? It seems like a logical uh, connection. What's the logical connection? That if your parents are hurting you in the process of a past abuse that continues to hurt or whatever it is that, and, and very often it continues to hurt. Why? Because there was no forgiveness. There was no regret. There was denial. And the, and the big conspiracy and secret continues on. The toxins continue to be fed. 
So then it's a situation you're being hurt. If you're being hurt, even forgiveness and the same thing with honoring your parents may be honoring them by not forgiving them. That's the honoring because that's the healthy thing to do. Maybe you have to stay at home and say a capital tilim for the neshama that they should do tshuva. So that's the response to that, to that question. Regarding the second issue, which is, well, equally complicated, very, very difficult situation because children are impressionable. If the abuse came as a child, then, and it came from a role model that was Jewish, it's very hard to not throw out the baby with the bathwater, as they say. Because you know it came from a direction, from a place that was supposed to be a holy place, a teacher, a parent, someone that was a Jewish role model. As, as. So, of course, Judaism is going to appear horrific. Because you see this person who's holy, who's sacred, who's supposed to be someone that's respected, behaving in that way, and then you see the public respecting that person, you begin to say, what, what kind of Judaism is this? Obviously, logically, the argument would be, you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, just because one person is a bad apple, or if two people are, but there's so many beautiful things in Judaism that come from God. But then, of course, the counter-response is, one second, if God allowed a person like that to represent him, the Chil Hashem aspect, if God allows people to respect that person, and it's all covered up, and everything is, I'm the, I'm the problem, how could I respect that? That is why it's so devastating. Besides the abuse itself, the fact the Chil Hashem it creates, that it actually can destroy a person's relationship with Hashem and with Teda, because the person who is representing Hashem and Teda abused the person, that tells you how grave the abuse is. From the perspective of the person who's healing, I cannot, I don't think this forum is enough to be able to tell you what to do. I think you need to speak to someone and work it through. What you need to work on is going to be not just about Judaism, about the rest of your life. Because there are many beautiful things that happen in a person's life and they get contaminated and polluted by the person who delivered it. So let's say love in your life and then the person who loved you hurt you. You need to work out that the love is still real even though the hurt is not. And that's a difficult thing to do, but that takes work and it's doable. So this isn't just about Yiddishkeit, it's about in general. That often, like with cancer, the good cells die with the bad cells when you treat the cancer. You want to make sure that the good cells are preserved even though you kill off the bad ones. But often it gets polluted and it gets convoluted. Some people don't want to be in a relationship altogether. Why? Because the relationships they saw hurt them. So why do I go there altogether? But what you're doing is a disservice to yourself. You're throwing out everything when what you really want to do is extract the fruit, the beauty of a relationship, and eliminate the negativity. Like some people, after the Holocaust, didn't want to build families and have children. And what was the Rebbe's response to people? You're continuing the Holocaust. You're doing exactly what the Nazis, Yimachshimam, wanted, that everything should stop. What you want to do is separate the two. And realize that building a home and family can be done in a loving and a healthy way, even though you've seen the devastation that the world can, that people can perpetrate upon other people. And this is a common, a common thread that goes in all type of healing, that initially, you know, when you get really hurt, you just don't want to go there altogether. You want to write off and just eliminate the whole thing and say the whole thing is polluted. But it's not. It's like someone's not going to drink water any longer. Why? Because once they drank water, or more than once, the water was destructive, was, was uh, polluted, and caused them illness. What you want to do is be able to slowly acclimate yourself back and drink water, make sure the water is clean and pure and healthy. 
but not to drink any longer because it was polluted. The water was not, the water fundamentally is not polluted, just to use that as an example. So that's the work that needs to be done and takes work and it could be done. Because as we are, as we grow into adults, we learn to separate. We learn, and that's where you'll see anyone who's healed, and I've seen many who have, so it's doable and achievable. They come to realize that there's certain things in life that happen to them. That doesn't mean the whole picture was bad. It means part of it. And yes, sometimes you need to throw out initially, like Hafsaka we learned before about Hafsik. Sometimes you need to lose faith in an unhealthy version of God and an unhealthy version of Judaism before you reclaim it in a healthy way. But this has to be done very carefully and very sensitively. Because as I said, logic, everyone can understand that there's a snowball, it's now a mixture of good and evil, and we have to separate the two. But emotionally, it's very difficult to separate because it's hard for you to look at. Look at Judaism, look at this person who represented it to me, took advantage of the situation and hurt me. How am I supposed to look at Judaism again with, with clean, naive, and innocent eyes? But as I said, it takes work, and it could be done. And, it, and it's been proven time and again that it could be done in the context of religion, as well as context of relationships, and trust. Because remember, at the end of the day, what was abused most was trust. So we're never going to trust again the rest of our lives. Do you know what kind of consequences that has? So what you want to do is learn to trust slowly. A person like that needs to go slowly. They need to learn to trust. They can't just say, just trust me, because they've been hurt. They're not neutral about it. But with work and with the proper guidance and the proper tutelage and proper mentorship, you could come to that place. Okay. Let's talk about a few other things, a little lighter or easier. So the next question is, Isaac is Abraham's only son. Why is Isaac referred to? Greetings, Rabbi Jacobson. I'm wondering why Isaac is referred to as Abraham's only son in the Akedah. It's I guess you're saying. Your son, your only one. And at least one other place in my Siddur. Another place in your Siddur, I'm sorry, besides the Akedah? Could be. I would be very interested in your explanation of this. Thank you. Well, the basic explanation is very simple. The Pasuk says, Because if you just said, your son, he has another son, Ishmael. If, so he has to qualify which one? So it says, What does it mean, your only son? It means not your only son, Abraham had another son. It means your only son with Sarah. Sarah and Abraham are only one son, Yitzchak. The Ahafta I'm not going to go into right now. It's not relevant to the topic. So that's the basic answer. The fact of the matter is, Yishmael is Befeir, the son of Avram. And Lu and Avram even prayed that Yishmael should inherit and should preserve his legacy. As a matter of fact, we actually do attribute that. Later by Matan Teda, who does Hashem go to when he offers the Teda? To Bnei Esav, the children of Esav, the son of Yitzchok. And the children of Yishmael, the son of Avram. And you'll find a number of places that Yishmael is spoken about and the children of Yishmael as children of Avram. Later, even Islam, as the Rambam says, originates from those teachings and helps pave the way to the Gula. So Yishmael has definitely from the seed of Abraham and therefore has power. It has to be harnessed, it has to be directed, it has to be, um, has to be um, tamed just like the children of Esau have to be tamed. So the concept of Abraham's only son in the Akedah, when you say only, meaning from Yisara, because that became the path 
of that brought, gave birth to Yitzchok, that gave birth to Yaakov, that gave birth to the Shvatim, that would be the path of the Bnei Yisrael, the children of Israel, who would ultimately leave, go into Egypt and leave Egypt to receive the Torah and be the teachers, the people of the book, that would bring the mandate of God to the entire world, including to the children of Yishmael. But the children of Yishmael, you'll see pop up more than once, and you see them even referred to in the different places in the Midrashim that talk about the Mepharshim and Midrashim, the commentaries, talk about the vision of Daniel, that the four, the four empires, and one of them, especially according to the Evan Ezra, refers to the empire of the Ishmaelite empire, Ishmaelite empire. So they are part of the Birur and the refinement. If you look at the Maimorim, Tavshin Tess, Pesach Maimorim, the Friedrich Rebbe, Tavshin Tess, you'll see it says the last Birur, Birur of Edem, Esav, and Yishmael. So you have this concept throughout, uh, throughout the Svarim and throughout Teresh Peh, Yishmael is absolutely a factor and important in history. But the only son, that's the answer to your question. Okay, next question. Why does a divorced woman have to cover her hair? Okay, so firstly, let me refer you to the hair covering episodes that I dealt with in episodes 95, 96, and 97. There are long discussions about the significance of what hair is, the power of hair, and in, in, the, in the spiritual power that hair carries, both in women and men, and the different contradictions. We find the growth of hair, the cutting of hair, the power of the Nazir, the Shimshin. On the other hand, the need to cut the hair. Chassidus talks about this at length, and I elaborated back then, 95, 96, and 97, about hair covering in general. As far as the divorcee goes, so the basic reason is the following. One of the main reasons why the hair is covered is because hair is, has a form of sexual energy. As we spoke then, and, I elabor- and I'll reiterate now, sexual energy is not bad energy. It's intimate energy. Just like the Holy of Holies, you cover up. Not because there's something ugly or disgusting or obscene. It's because it's the holiest. And holiness is covered. Here is a holy thing. But however, for a woman who's not ever been married, meaning has not yet had an intimacy in her life, so then the hair still is uh, so-called innocent and is not prone to any negative forces, negative bacteria to wean energy from it. But once a woman is married, the hair now, is, that energy has been released, intimate energy has been released, so now needs more care. There should not be yenika sachetzenim, uh, for other negative forces should come try to wean and, and glean energy and, and uh, nurse energy from that power. So a divorcee, that didn't change. She's already experienced intimacy. That's why she technically should cover her hair. However, Rabbonim today make heterium. Why? Because the fact is she's already not in a marriage. And it could very well be it can affect her ability to date and find the right, second, right man to marry her second marriage. So that's why there are heterium. How would you explain in the context of the spiritual message? You'd say since intimacy was released is true, but since right now she's not in that place, perhaps you, you can be a little more lenient, according to those opinions that are lenient in this regard. But some women take on and the, the rules, some rabbis that don't give this leniency, and the reason is for what I just explained. Now, for more details, I refer you back to those episodes to get more into understanding what does it mean that hair has such power, and what does it mean the yinikas achitzenim, and so on and so forth. Okay. Let's move to the next question. The next question is Panosa before marriage. 
Is it inappropriate for a bocha to earn parnasa before marriage? Rabbi Jacobson. After a bocha receives smicha, which is ordination, him a rov, or ordination for being a rov, is it considered taboo for him to earn parnasa before marriage? Is he considered to be less chassidish for doing so? What is the Rebbe's position on this Indian? Thank you. Okay. I've talked about Parnassah in general and also more importantly what people who are out of school should be doing whether it's men or women should they just be hanging around waiting for a Shidduch. So these were in episodes 53, 54 and 55 episode 120 and 169, 170, 171 and 172 169 through 172. So that again complements what I'll be saying now. I think in this type of situation, like many times I say this again, case by case, as well as understanding the personality you're dealing with. And this is not uncommon in the Rebbe's approach to things when it came to, let's say, the shluchim he sent to Israel. And they asked what should be their final shlichus. So the Rebbe gave options. First option, he says, is to become a rov. Second option is to become a, a shliach in a chabar house. And the Rebbe wants those two the options till the last option, if there's no other choice, to go into business and you're still a shliach because I've sent you, sent you an Israel and doing whatever you can to spread Yiddishkeit and Teda. So I think you can apply the same principle here. First choice is obviously is to continue to learn and aggressively date because a person like this should be going into marriage as soon as possible. That's the Teda way, that's the Chesidah way. However, to say that a person, let's say, is not made, not, doesn't have that chemistry, it doesn't have that hasmod. It's not going to sit and really learn. They're going to just waste time. So to say they should just hang around the streets and not go to work, you can't say that either. Again, it may not be option one. Maybe it's option three. Option two, I would say, is maybe work in a place of clay kedush, teaching, assistant to teaching, helping a chabad house, maybe doing work in that chabad house, which could be for pay. So at least you're involved in Yoni Gedusha and Yoni holding of, of, of the, of the Shlichas and Kavona that we were taught, to, that we were trained and we were sent to this world to do. If all that doesn't work out, then to say that absolutely no, not work at all, I would not say that. But only after exhausting the first two options, because you could also work and you could also make money in a more of a holier environment. The reason I'm saying it is because the mission of a person is to make a Dira B'Tachtenim. However, as we all know, when you're five years old, that's, you're still in training. When you're 15 years old and 20 years old, you're still in yeshiva and you're still in that environment. You don't necessarily just simply have to throw, run out into the outside world, which can be dangerous. What do I mean by dangerous? You don't yet have a family. You don't yet have a wife. There's many initiatives out there, tests. So why put yourself in position, we say. Why put yourself in additional type of challenges? Secondly, why is your mind into purely money? Is this why your soul was sent to earth? So a person who's saturated and infused with the, the kavona, the purpose for which we were created, at this stage you're not yet there. Now, that doesn't mean there comes the next stage, a marriage, and then you need to make a living. Some people, there too there's the options, as I said, going on shlichus, something in the clay kedish, meaning something in the work of a chinuch or in, 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 in Jewish type of work. But... Is it, is it possible also to go into business? But then you have already Paz Basale, which means you have a wife, you're building a family, you have a home, you're more secure in that sense. So it's less of a challenge. 
That's the way I would phrase the, cha- the reasons we would be, how I would, I would recommend to Abba not to just go jo- throw into, yourself into work. In addition, as I said, at that point, why aren't you trying to fulfill what the Rebbe sent you to, told us to Bishluchim? Why would you not be involved in that if you're a talented person? So what, because money is more important than everything. Some people say, I need money, security. At that point, you should be more interested in fulfilling the purpose than the money and security. That's clearly from the Rebbe, the general guideline. But to completely eliminate that option, I'm not going to say that, because there's clearly situations where I've seen that from the Rebbe as well, even though he discouraged, but sometimes that's the circumstances, and there are many different types of circumstances that compel a person to actually go work. But I would not put that on top of the list, I would put it as the last option, or one of the last options. That's my response to that question. Another question came in about the spiritual meaning of colors. What is the question? What is the spiritual meaning of colors? Rabbi here, hi Rabbi Jacobson, can you, hi Rabbi Jacobson, could you tell us which is the spiritual meaning of colors in Judaism? With all the information out there, like yoga or Reiki, I don't know what is the real meaning anymore. Visualizing light around and inside of me brings me a lot of peace and well-being. So this question is very important to me. Thank you. So I won't repeat what I've already discussed. I refer you directly to episodes 91 and 92, where I elaborated at length the meaning of colors according to Kabbalah, according to Chassidus. And you can just go to 91, 92, and you'll get a direct answer. There's no reason to go over it again. Let me do a few follow-up, and then we shall do the question of Chassidus question. And um, yes, follow-up. Moment here, follow-up. Yes, last episode, last week, 200, episode 200, we spoke about more refined men, and here's a man's response to what I discussed. Reb Simon, thank you for your enlightening weekly video casts. I am newly married and in Kailal. My wife and I enjoy watching your Fabrengans and discussing them. In episode 200, you read a question from a woman asking, how can we get men to be more refined in their approach to marriage and family? I thought I would share a young man's perspective. Growing up in Crown Heights, going to Ahol Teda, I recognized both the blessings and sacrifice I was making and hearing to a chassidishil lifestyle. Personally, for me, not having a girlfriend and a physical relationship with a woman during my late teens and early 20s was very challenging. Nevertheless, as a chassid, I did my very best at controlling my passions. In my self-talk, I told myself that when I get married, I'll be able to fulfill that aspect of my life with my wife in a kosher way. When I got married, I certainly wanted and still do want to make up for lost time, so to speak. Of course, our bond is not only physical, and with years, I hope our emotional bond will only continue to deepen. But I can't deny that there's a strong physical or hormonal component to our intimate life. To put this in Torah's words, Ish darke lichpesh, in all matters and manners of life. Which means Ish darke lichpesh is the manner of a man is to conquer. I am very ready to realize that as I go through life and the biological, ch- life, the biological changes life brings, that the very strong physical passions may be softened, but I think that there's an injustice done to teach women who may tend towards the more sensitive emotional way that marriage is primarily about emotional connection and not stress the physical connection. Of course, I'm not writing this to condone young men, or women for that matter, looking at an appropriate, inappropriate things. But I think more should be done to foster the blessings of intimacy within the framework of marriage and not to shun it as crass or unrefined. Thanks. Yes, I 
agree with what you said, but as you wrote, you're a young man, which means you have a lot to learn ahead of you. And the Torah says, one flesh intimacy is not just a cerebral and platonic experience. It absolutely has a physical dimension and frankly is the only way to bear children. But more importantly, the intimacy, the physical intimacy absolutely is Kodesh and Toher, Alpi Halacha, in the right time, in the right way, and so on. And we, we learned that, and the, the Rebbe brings it, and I've discussed it at length many, many times. So that's correct. But we have to also remember that, it, that in, like in everything, just like when you eat a meal, we're supposed to eat. Just like when you do other physical activities, work. But overindulgence, without recognizing that there's a soulfulness and a spirituality, that the kavana of the physical is in order to bring a deeper spiritual connection and a deeper emotional connection, I think that's what I would emphasize a lot more than you have. It's true you mentioned the emotional connection that grows, but you can't imagine the physical connection itself is enhanced by an emotional connection. I'm not negating that the the physical connection can also enhance the emotional, but the emotional can enhance the physical. And that's what I would submit to you as a young man and all people listening to work on that. And you'd be surprised what you discover because the human being is not just two bodies. Love is not just two bodies. There's a spirit, there's emotions, there's feelings. And there's a much that goes into it that's more than just a physical act. And the more you bring that spirit into it, the deeper that physical connection as well is in there. That's what I would say is my comment. Another follow-up is about prayer. We've been talking about davening the last few weeks and continue to add some more points. And I will say the following. Read, davening, requesting our needs. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for your weekly video shiurim and your current focus on davening prayer. I'm writing to comment on something you said in episode 199. To paraphrase, you said that davening is relative to who you are, your own soul. The request for material things is for the purpose of elevation. The focus of davening is the soul connection, the soul connecting to Hashem, a soul connection and emoting to Hashem. My comment is, that from what I've been taught, we shouldn't disregard the importance of requesting our physical needs from Hashem. Instead of looking at bakoshes tzrochav and personal issues in davening, meaning requesting our needs, as a distraction and a necessary evil, our focus should be to humbly recognize that we are physical beings, yes, with a soul, and our entire being here on this planet is dependent on Hashem's blessing of health, safety, parnosa, livelihood, and so on. This is why at the pinnacle of our davening in Shemun Esser, we mention all these physical needs, something we didn't do before. We shouldn't pretend that we're just a soul wanting to connect to Hashem, but we're a composite being, body and soul, who is entirely dependent and nullified before Hashem for every basic need, for our very life, of course, as you quote, uh, period. Of course, as you quoted the Rebbe, the material blessings we have are to be utilized to make the world a better place, Adir Rebetachtenim. Am I to understand that according to Chabad Chassidus, we should not focus on requesting our needs. Very good question. So when you look at the idea of tefillah, and, I, and I, I will elaborate because I didn't mention, I should have maybe spelled it out, and thank you for the opportunity to do so. Bakoshas Srochov in the Rambam, the basic mitzvah of tefillah is to pray only when you have a need, to ask for your needs. The Rambam says it clearly, that tefillah is to request your needs. means when you don't have a need, there's no mitzvah to daven. However, the Rabbanon added all kinds of different elements to davening that when you want your needs, you often want to also appease and satisfy Hashem. And then there's other elements of davening. There's the thank yous. Of, that's, the, that's the, 
what I just said is the pius, tefillah's pius. Then there's the tefillah's teda, where you're thanking and acknowledging Hashem, they added that as well. And then you have the other elements of tefillah that elaborated in Hilchus tefillah at length. But Chassidus comes and talks about Avedis HaTfila. When you talk about the Chassidim Rishenim HaYashem, they were daven, and they would prepare for davening for hours. Avedis HaTfila, Ezu Avedis Shabalev Zuhi Tfila. What is the service of the heart? This is prayer. Fa'avadatem es Hashem alekeichem, as in serving God. So this is, does not negate Bakosh Tzrochah. Bakosh Tzrochah is the minimum, and that's actually what is required. But then there's tefillah as connecting, avedis atfila, tefillah from the word hatefel klecheres, that you're connecting, attaching yourself. So it's a form of communing with God. Like karbonis, became karbonis. Karbonis were not just, some karbonis were for one purpose or another. But karbonis was also Melosh and Kiruv, coming closer, the kar of keiches, as the Bechai writes, to bring your faculties and your whole person. Adam kiyakrim became your animal soul, as Alter Rebbe teaches, to bring that closer to the divine. And then tefillah takes on a far more broader, broader scope, which is our connecting, our attaching. And that's where you have Avedis at tefillah that Chassidus so elaborates on, the Alta Rebbe, but especially when you look in Kuntas at from the Rebbe Rashab and Kuntas Aveda, Avedis at tefillah, as he says clearly, in connecting and through his bonus and contemplation and bringing down to emotions, awakening of emotions in our connection and our um, fusion and our ability to unify ourselves with the divine and the divine purpose of our lives. So it's not a contradiction, but this is how you spell it out. I have not seen anywhere that really talks about this, and maybe if someone out there is listening, maybe knows there's an actual source that compares Avedis Atfila, Chassidus talks about with Bakoshes Tzrochov. I may recall reading once an essay about it, but I'm not sure. But this is clearly the when you read Avedis, Avedis Shabalev. Because to ask your requests, you don't, need a Vedish, you don't need to necessarily be particularly emotional about it. You could be. But you could ask your request, say, please send me parnosis, send me livelihood, send me health, and other requests and needs that a human being, human needs that we have. But a Vedish Shebelev, as in, Vavadis Hashem Alekechem, Vahaftis Hashem Alekechem, Vacholavofcha, Vacholnafsha, Vacholmeidecha, that's more than just Makoshes Tzrochev. That you shall love the Shema and Vahafta. We are not talking about requesting your needs. Even though afterwards it talks about benesati matabatzachem and so on. But the point is that you're asking, you're loving God with all your heart, with all your might, with, with all your spirit, with all your soul, and with all your might, with all of you. That already is nadargi, what this talks about, avas Hashem and yiras Hashem, which is birthed through his bondness and contemplation and all the different stages in davening the four rungs and the climbing of the ladder, the journey that we call prayer. Which of course is discussed so much about in the Chassidish, in the Sifri Chassidus Chabad, about Avedis Hatfila. Okay. So we covered prayer as well. We will continue more because there's more to say about the prayer, but we will continue that in, pre- in upcoming episodes. Let me now go to the Chassidus question of the week. Chassidus question of the week goes like this. Okay. And that is, uh, let's see here. If the hidden good is greater than the revealed good, why do we wish each other revealed good? Very good. So, Tanya Pedik Chovov, 26, I mentioned it earlier, which was uh, the sheer Tanya that we learned a little while back, uh, last week actually. Um, so this is what the questioner says. The hidden good that doesn't fit into this world 
which is the expression in Tanya, we should be happy that we are experiencing a closeness to God. This is all translated Tanya. What's the equation then of wishing and blessing people? Why then are we wishing and blessing people? It should be revealed good, but the way we humans understand good, the way we understand good. The Tanya is saying that when someone suffers, or there's Yesudim, or oppression, or anything else where he doesn't see good, you should know that's even deeper good that cannot be revealed in this world. That's why the only way it can be expressed is through a concealed way, which is, seems to be the opposite. So the question is asking, so then why do we wish each other the revealed good? We should be looking for that higher, deeper good. Seemingly like the marshmallow test on delayed gratification. The greater good is greater than the lesser good. Is the greater good greater than the lesser good? Take, for example, coming into this world. It's not easy, but it's worth it. The reward is in the next world. Enjoy one now or much greater later. Once you tell me that hard times is the greater good, for it, really mean, for it to really mean something, you should have to want it always more than the second to best option. In other words, if you're taking seriously these words, then you should want this. It's like saying it's better, but, it's, it's better, but don't go there. Why shouldn't you always want it if it's real? And B, on the flip side, in general, can you please explain why the lesser good, the revealed good, is what we should wish for? Thank you very much for your awesome work and this great platform. Much blessing. Even though I don't know the answer yet, I bless you in the form of abundance of blessings, way more than you could imagine possible in a revealed and tangible way. Okay, we can say this is the category of what's called a klotzkash, very basic question. But the answer is also basic. And the answer is as follows. The same Hashem that is conceals good in, uh, sometimes in, in a package that looks not positive, also created good and said that he wants that things should be good in a revealed way. So even though, yes, there is a deeper type of good in the helam, in the, it's called chesed, chesodim nistarim. However, the same God also said, I want to give you real good and I want you to pray for it and ask for it, which is why we daven. And we ask for revealed good. Because that's also a gilialikus. The fact that God, that godliness and the, good, the goodness of godliness cannot, is not revealed is a helm not just for us, it's also for God a concealment. So the idea of revealed good is absolutely the kavana. However, God in his mysterious ways sometimes wants to send us a package of even better good. So he conceals it. But not the kavana should remain concealed, the kavana should be revealed. So when a person has betochen and trust and faith that even things that come that seem negative in their lives also has revealed good, that itself reveals it and ultimately will be revealed. When we say Mashiach will come, we don't just say we're going to be satisfied with the concealment of the divine. The Friedrich Rebbe Takah says, we will yearn for the time of Golis when we had to struggle. Because in the struggle there's something very profound. But ultimately, the, the ultimate revelation is that even the profound concealed good should also be revealed. So when we bless someone revealed good, we're blessing two things we're saying. The good should be revealed and you should never have to have something that's concealed. And even when you do have something concealed, that also should be revealed. That it shouldn't remain concealed. So the fact of the matter is, when a teacher, for example, is conveying an idea to a student, so he says it in words the student can understand. But if the teacher has a very profound love for the student, he'll also implant ideas that right now the student is not capable of understanding yet. But it's in there. It's in the words. And as time will pass, the student will realize that this hint or this message 
that this teacher said is even deeper than the one that he taught me. And you'll realize how profound that is. And you'll realize that there's even a deeper love. At the time, it's concealed because it couldn't have been revealed either because the student was not capable or because the power of the idea itself needs time to be absorbed and to be revealed, however you explain it. Or because the, good, the, the hidden good, the hidden, I'm sorry, the greater good can only be expressed in, an, in, a, in words that are beyond the containers of revealed good. Whatever the reason is, but then you realize that when it comes real, you say, wow, that teacher really loved me, gave me something, resources and tools, which of course is an unbelievable message regard to Gimel Tammuz when you realize, as the Rebbe said many times regarding the Friedrich Rebbe, which of course applies to the Rebbe, that the Rebbe tells Bavarant, that even a time when we don't feel you're getting direct flow, the Rebbe Bavarant everything, the answers are there. And when you find them, you realize they're even deeper love than when the Rebbe said them in a revealed way. Because you realize he prepared... That's how much he cared about you, that he prepared something that would later have a, like we call a delay reaction, that you later will be revealed. So the bottom line is, Tevanir Vanigla is the Kavona. In Vayigash, Tovshin, in Vayigash, Chelik Hei, there's a brilliant, powerful Sikha where the Rebbe says about Mashiach and Gula, it says, you know, Mashiach and Gula, Chsidah says, is Nachas Ruach Nivra. When a person, oh, let me let me let me backtrack a moment. I'm rushing a bit. It says in the Mishnah, "Yafeshachas b'tshuva meisim tevim mekol chay elam haba." Now, one hour of tshuva meisim tevim be'elam haza in this world is greater than all the entire world to come. Then it continues. The Mishnah continues, "Yafeshachas shalkedas ruach be'elam haba." One hour of pleasure in the world to come is more than all the pleasures of kol chay elam haza of this world. Seems a contradiction. And the answer is given, that's the Mereb Marash, you talk about Nachas Ruach, the Hashem, the Creator's Nachas, pleasure, one hour on this earth is worth more than the entire world to come. You talk about Nachas Ruach, our Nachas Ruach, the pleasure of Elam Abba, is far greater than the pleasures of this world. So based on that, it would appear that when Elam Abba comes and we get to Gula, the Pirish Elam Abba is not just Ganadin, but Lossed Lave. It's only like a candy thrown to the recipient. Hashem has more nachas in this world when we struggle. So the whole Mashiach is just what to give people a reward, but God doesn't need that. So the Rebbe answers no. That the Giluyim is Negei and Atzmus. That if the good is revealed only to Hashem and not to us, there's some type of compromise even on the highest levels. Shlemus of Atzmus that it should be Begilui. Begilu that even we should see it. That still, that still is not a contradiction that the deepest good is Nesava Kadosh Baruch Hu, where does God desire? Much more than the higher worlds where there's a lot more revelation. But he wants that concealed divine that is here in this world to be revealed. And that's also in the gain, Atzmas, not just for us. Which adds the whole dimension of this question that you've asked, very good question. So with that we will conclude this episode 201 of My Life Chassidus Applied. As always, it's a great honor to speak to you. Everyone should have a very freilich and chedesh adar, freilich and tamid. And I remind you again about the contest, which is the due date is the end of this week, Friday, of the submission of essays in this fourth annual My Life Chassidus Applied contest. Please submit, and uh, Hashem should bless everybody to succeed, and bless you all to win. And win the prize and have both Tevla Shemayim Tevla Briyas. 
Nachas Ruch Nivra and Nachas Ruch Beda, that both you will have pleasure from your success in winning the essay contest as well as giving the Eberster and the Rebbe pleasure for the idea of taking Chassidus, your Futsa and applying and implementing it in our lives. So th- every week we're here Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. My life, Chassidus applied. Thank you. Be well.